Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, we should start so you can have more time to uh, discuss the work. Um, uh, we're happy to have you all today, and we're welcoming Dr. Kimberly Katz. Uh, she's an associate professor of the Middle East history at Towson University in Maryland. Uh, in the United States. She holds a PhD in History and Middle East uh, Eastern Studies from New York University. And she's the author of two books, Jordanian Jerusalem, Holy Places and National Spaces, and A Young Palestinian's Dairy, The Life of Sam, uh, Sami Amr. She has published articles in the Muslim world, comparative politics, comparative studies in South Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Um, the Journal of Social Affairs and the International Journal of Middle East Studies. Her current research is on the dual era, Al-Ahd Al-Thunai in Hebron, which will be published in the journal Biography later this spring. She's working on a second article on the history and historiography of the dual era and will be presenting on that topic at the IPS today and the title of the talk, the precise title of the talk today is uh, Jordan and Egypt's administration in Hebron 1948 to 1949. So welcome Kimberly. I've met Kimberly first time when I was uh, a PhD student at University of Maryland, and I remember we enjoyed her talk uh, about uh, Sami Amr a lot. And I, I hope you know, I'm very happy to welcome you again here at IPS and Park. And um, the floor is yours. But I think maybe uh, Salim will give us uh, an introduction of Kimberly's uh, book about Sami Amr, and then we'll open the floor. Yeah. كيمبرلي كانت زميلة عزيزة علينا بحب أنوي بس إنها عروس كمان جوزت آخر كيمبرلي مؤلفة كتاب عن سيرة حياة سامي عمر من أهل دورة في الخليل وكتب مذكراته في فترة الحرب العالمية الثانية 1941-1941 ربح الكتاب جوائز عدة ونشر باللغة الإنجليزية عن بواسطة جامعة مطبعة جامعة تكساس ونأمل أن يظهر باللغة العربية قريبا إن شاء الله المذكرات بتعالج حياة موظف في فترة عاصفة اللي هي فترة الانتداب البريطاني والحرب العالمية الثانية تحديدا كان موظف بالنافي مش هيك بالنافي وكتب عنده مشاهدات مثيرة جدا عن الحياة اليومية بهذه الفترة كمان بحب أنوه لكتاب صدر مؤخر عن حديثا جدا صار له بس شهر طالع بينما نشية يافا وجبل الخليل يوميات محمد عبد الهادي الشروف شرطي انتدابي خدم في منشية يافا وفي الشمال في منطقة طول كرم وقلقيلة وبعدين بعد الحرب مثلا مباشرة انتقل وعمل في قرية نوبة اللي هي قريته في الخليل وهناك طرح مشاهداته عن عدة فترات لكن أهمها فترة الوجود المشترك من القوات المصرية 
والأردنية في منطقة الخليل اللي هي موضوع حديثنا اليوم فبشجعكم كلكم انه تحصلوا على نسخة منه موجودة بالخارج وأظني في محبة إذا ما كنتش ما فيش مانع عندكم إنه تعرفوا أنفسكم معلش قبل ما نبدأ عشان كيمبرلي يكون عندها فكرة مين مين الموجود القاعة وبنبدأ بالسيدة دكتورة غادة المدبوح طيب أنا غادة المدبوح مديرة بارك وأستاذة مساعدة في العلوم السياسية ودرست الدراسات الثقافية في جامعة بيرزيت سرين كوار طالبه في بيرزيت وعم باخذ لها مع دكتور غاده. صراحه بجوا استاذ تاريخ سياسية جامعه بيرزيت وبالمناسبه انا اللي عملت البوك ريفيو لكتابك في الجورنال اوف باليستاين ستاندز. انا ابريشيتد ذات فيري ماتش. داوود الحمي انا يعني خلينا نقول اشرفني على القاعد والان بشتغل بالكتابه و دائما كان لي علاقه بالكتابه. منير فخر الدين انا باحث في المؤسسه هون في جامعه بيرزيت. عمر تصدر مدرس في جامعه بيرزيت في الجغرافيا. على على زرادات مؤسسه الدراسات. كارول خوري مؤسسه الدراسات. My Arabic is not the best, so I'll say it in English. My name is Najib Albina. I'm from Chicago. I'm an eye doctor out there, and I just met Kim yesterday. And she's going to come to my wedding on Saturday. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I should add that Najib is the grandson, correct, yeah. of the great photographer who was the first photographer to. I mean, this is not to lessen the, your value, <laughs> but he's famous for being the first photographer who photographed the Dead Sea Scrolls. At the professional cinema. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cinema. 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 سميح حمود دائرة العلوم السياسية جامعة بيرزيت. علي موسى بشتغل في مجال الأبحاث في تاريخ القضية الفلسطينية ومترجم كمان. اسمي رينا أنا من إيطاليا بس أنا طالبة في برلين. رئيس لمعتصم الأشحب أنا بشتغل مترجم للغة الألمانية وأنا مهتم كثير في الموضوع وفي يعني إصدارات مؤسسة الدراسات قارئ لهم طالع مواظب على هاي الإصدارات وبتيقن إنه أنا الشخص الوحيد الموجود من الخليل هذا اللي جابك يعني هذا اللي محمد بدر طالب جامعة بيرزيت أهلا وسهلا فيك الدكتورة أهلا وسهلا كلكم So thank you all for coming. Um, oh, sorry. Does he want to come in? I didn't see her come in. Muhammad Masur al Maktabi, the Moses de Rasat. Thank you. 
I have a strong voice, so I think you'll hear me. Okay. Maybe not over that, but. <laughs> I think it's fine. If we feel it's noisy, we'll close it. So uh, the story of Hebron uh, during the 1948 Palestine War remains largely untold, eclipsed by the larger historical forces of the Nakba and the refugee crisis that resulted from Israel's declaration of independence. Today, I'd like to share with you my research on the history and historiography of Hebron during Al-Ahad al-Thuna'i, the dual era, which began at the start of the war in mid-May 1948 and ended with the departure of Egyptian troops on April 30th, 1949. Al-Ahad al-Thuna'i derives from an unusual configuration between Jordan and Egypt in which both countries temporarily ruled over the city. I borrow this term, uh, this title, from a single letter that I found in the Jordanian archive dating from 1951, addressed to the Jordanian Prime Minister from the Committee of Former Employees in Respected Hebron, Lejnat al-Muwadhafin al-Sabiqin bil-Khalil al-Muhtarama. This rare letter, which I'll talk more about uh, toward the end of my comments, um, provides insight into the situation of Palestinian supporters of Egypt during the dual era who were living under Jordanian rule two years after the dual era had ended, but were seeking their lost wages from another sovereign country, this is Egypt, which happened to be the collaborator, the former collaborator in the dual era. Now, I, I think that the best way to look at the dual era is to consider it within an analytical framework of a sort of proto-pan-Arab nationalism. Because what we'll see is that each country's locally based uh, leaders, al-Ahkam al askariya in Hebron, were vying for support from the Palestinian population in the city. So the time period that I'm focusing on is three to four years before Nasser's free officers movement would end the monarchy and British rule in Egypt, and seven to eight years before Suleiman al-Nabulsi's premiership in Jordan would raise enough pan-Arab nationalist sentiment to nearly bring down the Hashemite monarchy, itself struggling to promote a Hashemite alternative to, to Arab nationalism. So today I'm gonna talk about how Egypt and Jordan faced off uh, for one year in Hebron by discussing it through both the history and the historiography. The, hist the historiography of the dual era is very limited. The English language scholarship entirely omits discussion of this unusual situation in Hebron. Bethlehem comes up occasionally, um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, there aren't enough sources to really get into a discussion of it. Um, and the Arabic historiography mentions it but doesn't scrutinize it. Neither calls it by the name that appears in the archive, uh, which I have chosen to use, the dual era. Most simply describe Egypt and Jordan's military positions without addressing the effects that it had on the, on the population or the ways that Jord Jordanian and Egyptian military rulers or soldiers interacted with the Palestinian population. So my research does the latter. It looks at both the Jordanian, Palestinian, Egyptian, and British witnesses to the events who chronicled their stories within 10 to 50 years of the war, as well as looking at historical documentation. 
Almost immediately after Jordan's troops entered Palestine, the goal of Jordan's government leans toward governance of the new territory rather than preventing the birth of the new Jewish state. On May 19, 1948, the Jordanian Minister of Defense appointed Mustafa al-Rafai as governor of Hebron, and he took up his position just a few days after uh, the British Mandate official left on May 15, 1948. Both Glub Pasha, the longtime British commander of the Arab Legion, writing less than 10 years after the war, and Ma'an Abu Nawar, who was an officer in the Arab Legion and then served in a number of higher positions in the Jordanian military and government, um, and writing 50 years after the war, more than 50 years after the war, agree that the reason for the Jordanian government to appoint military governors to Hebron, as well as to Jerusalem, Ramallah, and Nablus, was to continue a civilian administration through the maintenance of law and order following the pullout of British mandatory rule. However, unlike those other cities, Hebron quickly became a military and political controversy. Jordan and Egypt passed control of the city back and forth in the first several months of the war. Arab Legion forces initially took control of Hebron, but they had been stalled while trying to hold the Bethlehem sector uh, when an Egyptian army column arrived on May 22nd, and according to Glub, demanded to take it over, quote unquote. At that point, Glub secured permission for the troops, uh, the Arab Legion's troops to leave, and they left the, the defense of the sector to the Egyptians because they wanted to avoid a dispute with the Egyptians during a time of war. However, Jordan's military governor did not leave uh, Hebron when the Jordanian troops left. So there was a military, uh, Jordanian military uh, governor, but no, no Jordanian troops in the region, and then there was an Egyptian military governor and Egyptian military troops at the time. By the end of June, June 29, 1948, Jordan's prime minister appointed a new military governor, Saleh al-Majali, to replace Mustafa al-Rafai at a time when Egyptian forces controlled the city. So several questions emerged concerning this post of Hakim al-Askari, um, whether it was al-Rafai or al-Majali. Um, what had the Jordanian military governor been able to do in the city without military support behind him? Had the two countries reached some kind of agreement, written agreement, for the two military governors while Egyptian uh, forces remained in the area and Jordan's troops were removed to fight elsewhere? Who took over the payment of salaries by this time for those in the bureaucratic offices vacated by the British? Politically speaking, Glub claims that the Egyptians adopted a partisan role that sought to punish Palestinians in the city if they demonstrated any sentiment for the Jordanian state. Although the militaries didn't cooperate, the Jordanian Arab Legion would return to protect the city of Hebron when Egyptian forces came under attack in the south of Palestine by Israel in October 1949. Egyptian rulers held off engaging in the war uh, in Palestine but felt pushed into it as a result of Egyptian popular opinion, a pretty rare thing in the Arab world. Members of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood had already left to fight in Palestine, independent of the Egyptian army. Uh, but by continuing to sit on the sidelines, the Egyptian government feared uh, public critique. And so when King Farouk finally decided to enter the war, he did so on the one hand in part to prevent the Zionists from taking over Palestine. He thought that would help his image at home. And perhaps more importantly, he wanted to prevent Jordan's King Abdullah from gaining territorial and political advantages. 
King Abdullah had long hoped to enlarge his kingdom by incorporating Syria, but would have to settle for Palestine and the war would give him that opportunity. Farouk thought that by entering Palestine, uh, entering Egypt into the war in Palestine, he could simultaneously halt Abdullah's expansion and elevate Egypt's standing in the Arab world, providing he had a strong military showing in Palestine. Unfortunately, his army was ill-prepared to match the military strength of the Israeli forces, and Abdullah's Arab legion, led by Glub Pasha, also proved stronger than the Egyptian army. Egypt's army faced serious challenges from the Israeli forces with little help from other Arab armies and lost significant battles. Egypt retreated to a small sector of coastal Palestinian territory that became known as the Gaza Strip. The political leadership of Jordan and Egypt disagreed often, but met at various times during the war, including in Hebron, where they shared control of the city. As for the Egyptian detachment composed of Muslim Brotherhood members, led by Ahmed Abdel Aziz, it had reached Hebron on May 20th, a couple days before the Egyptian regular army, to a warm welcome from the city's notables who had asked for Brotherhood assistance. In his Al-Ikhwan al-Muslimin fi Harb Palestine, Kamal al-Sharif states that Abdul Aziz himself quickly pressed on to Bethlehem, leaving some troops behind in Hebron. The conflict between the Jordanians and the Muslim Brotherhood volunteer troops took root as the Jordanians, he says, quote unquote, occupied the city and based its headquarters in the police station. Al-Sharif does not discuss the dual era per se, so nobody really calls it by that name, but he discusses the antagonism between the two once they had based themselves in the city and intended to stay for a considerable amount of time. One of the things he makes a significant issue about is the focus on the issue of symbolism, each country's presence and display of national sovereignty. So the representatives of Jordan and Hebron, uh, and Egypt and Hebron vied for control over the demonstration of visual imagery. Each sought to raise their, country, uh, their country's flag on the city's flagpole. Al-Sharif says that the Jordanians not only raised their own flag in Hebron, but they prevented the Muslim Brotherhood volunteers from raising theirs. He doesn't say if it's an Egyptian flag or a Muslim Brotherhood flag. That's not clear in his account. Al-Sharif notes that the city's Palestinian residents began to splinter into two camps between the Jordanians and the Egyptians. He adds that Glub exploited this situation profoundly, getting very angry about the situation, and Glub confirms this uh, Ash-Sharif's perception in his memoir when he mentions that he thought Egypt had uncharitable intentions seeking to, quote, penalize any Palestinian inhabitants who showed disregard for Jordan, end quote. Abdullah Attal, for his part, uh, probably well known to most of you, a Jordanian officer, uh, lieutenant uh, colonel, uh, and also with other positions, higher positions as well, um, uh, and a negotiator at the armistice talks, also recounts the interests of Jordan and Hebron in his controversial account of the war written 10 years later from Cairo, 1959, where he had taken refuge after losing confidence in King Abdullah during the negotiations and calling him out as a traitor. In his Karitha Palestine, Attal remarks that Glub had sent Arab Legion troops to Hebron to, quote, extend Jordanian influence on this important region at a time that it was under the control of the Egyptian army, end quote. 
Between Jordan and Egypt, the tension was most acute in Hebron as the two sides lobbied for support among the Palestinian population, vied for symbolic visibility by flying a national flag, right? If you think of the invention of traditions along the lines of Hobsbawm, flying a flag is very significant. And they fought for, to, uh, to control the city, tensions that would make the, the, the local population uneasy. Uh, Major Locht, the British military commander leading the Arab Legion troops locally in Hebron, quickly raised the Jordanian flag on the flagpole while lowering the Egyptian flag. That story differs slightly uh, from the one that Kamala Sharif told in his Al Ikhwan al Muslimin fi Harb Palestine that I just mentioned a few moments ago. Attel saw the matter of the flag dispute as petty. Of course, if you followed the Confederate flag issue in the United States recently, you'll know that flags are not petty at all. Um, <clears throat> but he offers more detail than a Sharif does. He says that Locht removed the Palestinian flag. A Sharif doesn't mention a Palestinian flag at all. Um, and the matter of flags, according to Attal, was ultimately solved by the cooperation of the Egyptian officers, which included ca uh, Egyptian Captain Abdul Mohsen Abu Nur and Commander Lutfi Wakid, along with the Jordanian military, military governor Saleh Al Majali. Uh, these leaders reached a solution whereby all three flags would be on view on the flagpole. And Attel explains the symbolism of each. He says that the Egyptian flag represented the mobilizing army, probably for coming in and saving the city under difficult wartime circumstances. Um, you, you can maybe figure out if that's the case. The Palestinian flag, he says, uh, represents the holy jihad, presumably for the, the one day that would be coming when, uh, when Palestine would be redeemed. And in his cynicism from his Cairo exile, Attel says that the Jordanian flag represented the forces of British Major Locht, who entered Hebron devouring a piece of prey. Although he saw fellow Jordanian military governor Saleh al-Majali as having done something honorable in Hebron, Attel continued to blame the British, in this case Major Locht, for the British manipulation of King Abdullah and the wartime situation. The nationalist tension between Egypt and Jordan was on full display by 19, the late 1950s when Attel published Kerith at Palestine. From his Cairo exile in 1959, he reminded his readers that the Egyptians had not left the Palestinian population during the most distressing period of the war. In fact, they had mobilized and saved them. For Attel, the Jordanians simply sought the territory for themselves. The seeds of divided loyalties were sown among the population between the Jordanians and Egyptians during the dual era. Attel was only reminding his readers of them in his memoirs in 1959. These barbs against the Jordanians came at a time when Attel's relations with the Hashemites had sunk following his implication and conviction in absentia in the assassination of King Abdullah's death in 1951 and King Hussein's weakened position following his liberal opening during the Nabulsi period in 1956-1957. Kamala Sharif, who recounts the Muslim Brotherhood's role, notes only the dissension among the population. Population. Jordan's role in saving some Palestinian cities, including Hebron, which Glub's account contains, is lost in the larger historiographical record. On to the historical record. Few records exist to provide details as to how the administrative apparatus in Hebron functioned under Jordanian-Egyptian control. 
One report in the Hashemite archives dated 30 September 1948, written by a Palestinian Hashemite loyalist named Ali al-Khatib, offers some candid, critical, praiseworthy, yet contentious views of the situation under both a Jordanian military governor, Saleh al-Majali, and an Egyptian military governor, Abdul Mohsen Abu Nur. Al-Khatib addresses his report to the head of the Diwan al-Maliki in Amman, and although that does not necessitate a link between Al-Khatib's office and the office of the Jordanian military governor Saleh al-Majali, the two likely worked close together during uh, this time of war. The report covers three main topics. I th only one of them is really pertinent to, uh, to this paper, um, and that the title is Egyptian Rule in the South of Palestine. Uh, the report is lacking somewhat in detail, but Al-Khatib observed and experienced a number of problems in, in dual era Hebron. He doesn't use the word title dual era. I'm, I'm using it because I adopt that title. Uh, he offers deep praise for Al-Majali, the, the Jordanian military governor, who played a significant role in the district and had an important effect on the, quote, loyalist coalition. He seems to be a part of that. Uh, he, it, um, the loyalist coalition sort of increased their loyalty towards the Hashemites and their motive to support the Hashemites. And indeed, Al-Khatib, it seems, was indebted to the governor and offered his profound thanks to the government via Al-Majali for helping him with his own recent arrest at the hands of our Egyptian brothers. Not the Muslim Brotherhood, but, you know, our Ikhwanna. Um, which was, quote, the result of a cheap plot by the opposition and corrupt communists, end quote. <coughs> Saleh al-Majali had stepped in to intervene on his behalf to release him from being detained. Al-Khatib doesn't really delineate a separation of powers between the Egyptian and, and uh, Jordanian military governors in Hebron, but the report begins to identify lines of, pot of uh, responsibilities associated with each regime. Al-Khatib gives just a taste of the activities in which Abu Nur was engaged, leading an unflattering view of Egypt's highest representative of the dual era at this time. By contrast, he mentions Saleh al-Majali as being, quote, strong, wise, and worldly, end quote. Al-Khatib had placed his fealty in the Jordanians and left out no details when, sh when sharing his antipathy for Egyptian rule in Hebron and for Abu Nur, tempered by some skillfully stylistic writing. At the beginning of the report, he notes his appreciation of the Egyptians and how deeply impressed he is by Egypt's long-standing role at the forefront of the Nahda, of the literary revival. He all, yet he also complains that some Egyptians have been agitating against Palestine from outside of the country, speci specifically from Saudi Arabia. He informed the Diwan that he tried to solve the problems by writing letters to those whom he thought responsible for instigating the trouble, both inside and outside of Palestine, to no avail. Al-Khatib wrote to the head of the, the Diwan in Amman regarding six remaining actions that the Egyptian military governor in Hebron had undertaken, which had affected both Jordanians and Palestinians in deeply harmful ways. All fell under the purview of municipal administration, which Abu Nur controlled, because this is September uh, 1948, so there was um, no military support for the Jordanian military governor at the time. According to the report, Abu Nur fired two Palestinians working in the tax administration for which he saw no justification unless one considers the fact that they had been cooperating with the Jordanian military governor. 
Further, the Egyptian governor persecuted a third Palestinian in the magistrate's court, implying Egyptian control over the court or influence. Finally, he deprived a fourth Palestinian of his salary in the land registry department. These events occurred during the period that the Jordanian military governor, as I mentioned, didn't have military support, although it's unclear how, how he might have responded if he had had military support behind him. Abu Nur may have made certain administrative decisions to endear himself to particular segments of Hebron's Palestinian population. Such decisions, however, also had the effect of alienating those who were pro-Hashemite. It is noteworthy in accord with the thread of my argument that Abdul Muhsin Abu Nur would later become a member of the Free Officers Movement in Egypt and would serve in high-level roles under President Gamal Abdel Nasser. Ali al-Khatib describes Hebron in his report as, quote, Middle East Berlin, recognizing already in September 1948 that the city had been divided between, quote, a Jordanian governor and an Egyptian governor, end quote. He claims also that a Palestinian governor was on the way, but no evidence in his report indicates this to be true. <clears throat> the following items, although of course there was a Palestinian mayor, um, the following items appear to have troubled Al-Khatib with the situation in Hebron. One, the potential spread of communism and the actions of the Egyptian military governor. Two, corruption in the city. And three, clamoring among political parties and an increase in family partisanship. He saw those as, quote, objects of delight for the opposition, by which he means the Zionist Jews, who by this time had declared an independent state in part of Palestine and continued to fight against the Arab states in other parts of Palestine, including Egypt and Jordan. Al-Khatib felt that being occupied by the above three matters was a frivolous waste of time, but far worse than that, he thought that it, quote, revived long dormant feuds, quote, unquote, among people in the city that could eventually lead them to turn, the, uh, to turn the Egyptians and Jordanians against one another when they should be focused on fighting the Zionist enemy. The report has additional details, but for the sake of brevity, I, I'm not including them today. I've written a bit of a longer piece uh, that I've submitted for publication, so there's more on this. But now I'm going to turn to the matter of diaries, because this whole topic actually came up because uh, beyond Sammy Amer's 1941 to 1945 journal, he also kept a, a, a much smaller journal in 1948 in which he mentions uh, the Jordanians and the Egyptians in uh, in Hebron in 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 this 1949 period, and this is what set me off trying to research and find out more about this subject. So um, uh, the following analysis then of Sami Amrs and Mohammed Asharuf, who I, I knew about uh, the diary because Alex Winner had published a piece in the journal Biography uh, in which his 1949 uh, writings appeared, uh, both in Arabic translated into English. Um, their respective diary entries give perspective on this Jordanian-Egyptian dual era as it unfolded during and after the war months. Sami kept his uh, diary from January to the end of April 1949, which documents both his own family situation and his work as a municipal employee of the dual era. In addition, Mohammed al-Sharouf, who was a policeman during the mandate period and wrote for a very long time, kept a number of diaries, uh, Mohammed al-Sharouf very clearly supported the Egyptians. His account from the 1949 period corroborates Sami's writings, although the two um, almost certainly didn't know each other. Mohammed al 
Roof was 10 years older than Sammy from the village of Nuba. Sammy was born and for most of his life lived in uh, Hebron up until the time of 1962 when he moved to Amman. But for the time that he was a young man, uh, with the exception of a couple of short years when he lived in Jerusalem and in uh, Ramle, he lived most of his life in Hebron. So these two men's accounts, in particular the younger Sammy, provide details about how the tensions between the Egyptians and the Jordanians played out. During this period, Sammy was building a home for his family. He, at the time, had a wife and an infant son. And so the importance of work to complete his new home, to be able to pay for it, is woven throughout the lines of his short diary. Muhammad al-Sharuf's circumstances differed from Sammy's in that he was a landowner, but during the mandate period, he supplemented his income by working as a policeman, and he tried to continue. He did continue that work uh, in the uh, period after 1948. He applied um, for work with the Jor with the Egyptians, not the Jordanians. He writes in February that the struggle in Hebron between the Jordanians and the Egyptians quote continued at its peak, despite the fact. Uh, that the Egyptians have assumed the policing duties and were paying the salaries of administrative employees and the municipal authorities. That's Sami. Sharuf went with some of his fellow policemen from the mandate period for an interview on February 25th with the station sergeant with the aim of continuing in this position under Egyptian rule. Within a month, on March 26th, he signed a contract with the Egyptian rulers in Hebron to work as a policeman in the city, and noted that his salary for, for February and March 1949 came from the Egyptians. He also indicated in his diary a salary for the same work in December 1948 and January 1949, but he never says who paid for the salary of that period. In an entry from Sammy's diary in March, he makes clear that the Jordanians offered him two months' salary for his cooperation, possibly in an effort to entice him to inform on friends and family who supported the Egyptians. The Jordanians told him that the salary was given, quote, on the basis that he cooperate with them. With a young family to support, a home to finish building, and influenced by friends, Sammy took the money. The next day, with his conscience clearly weighing heavily on him, he writes that he, quote, regretted this decision. He consulted with the Egyptian governor on the matters, who agreed with him that he should return the money and, quote, cut his ties with the Jordanians. A couple of days later, Sammy writes that the Jordanians and Egyptian soldiers filed into the office he worked in. He singled out the Jordanian soldiers for engaging in unprofessional and threatening behavior toward the Palestinian workers or employees. The Palestinian employees who supported the Egyptians responded the next day with a strike that pitted the two sides against each other. Sami reports that the Jabari family, longtime Hashemite loyalists, opened fire on the protesters whose goal was to reach the Egyptian governor at his base in the city's hospital. Muhammad al-Sharuf concurs with the events, though he says that those opening fire were, quote, followers of the Jordanian government. Uh, by the end of the month, the Jordanian government sent the Minister of the Interior from Amman to deal with the situation in Hebron because of its growing intensity. While the minister came and left, unsuccessful in his efforts to calm the situation at the local level, the two military governors worked to pacify the situation. 
The Egyptian governor requested that people be allowed to leave without being harmed, a request that went neglected as Jordanian soldiers marched through the town to arrest Palestinian supporters of Egyptian rule. Sami lists members of his own family, including by marriage, who were wanted for their political positions. He names Mukhlas Amr and Fakhri Hammouri. They both sought refuge with the Egyptian governor at his hospital headquarters. These two individuals personify two types of Palestinians who supported Egypt during this period, but at the end of the dual era made different choices. Mukhlas Amr remained in Hebron under the Jordanians. He was a journalist and had been one of the founders of the Communist Party in Palestine. His political activities landed him in a Jordanian prison, but he fell ill with stomach cancer. The Jordanians later released him on mercy grounds and he died in 1957. At the time of the Egyptian withdrawal from Hebron, Fakhri Hamori left for Gaza with the Egyptians. He remained there for his entire life, never returning to his hometown of Hebron, and he died in 1962. The end of the dual era, um, the geopolitical uh, <coughs> confusion in Hebron was ultimately sorted out by the Jordan-Israel Armistice Agreement signed on April 3, 1949. Hebron was originally part of the United Nations Partition Plan's Arab state, and the, although technically it fell under Jordanian uh, control according to the Armistice Agreement, the city also remained under de facto Egyptian control. In other words, the Egyptians had reached their armistice agreement with the Israelis on February 24, 1949, which included a clause about Hebron and Bethlehem. I told you that that popped up just a little bit, and it popped up in the armistice agreement when most Egyptian forces were safely behind uh, lines agreed upon at, uh, in Gaza. The exception to that was a military governor and forces of uncertain number which remained in the Hebron-Bethlehem area uh, since Operation Yoav in October 1948. The Transjordanian-Israeli negotiations moved between Rhodes and the local environment when Israel's negotiator, Elias Sasson, returned from Rhodes in December 1948 to try to move the talks forward with King Abdullah. During these talks, which preceded the formal armistice talks, Sasson passed a message to King Abdullah via his intermediary, Abdullah Attal, regarding the disposition of Hebron. And Sasson advised, quote, the king to make efforts obtain, to obtain the withdrawal of Egyptian forces from the south of Jerusalem and Hebron so as to save himself the difficulties and political trouble that their presence was liable to cause, end quote. Israel warned the king in December to try to avoid any trouble from the Egyptian presence in Hebron. The Transjordanian-Israeli armistice agreement said little about the city of Hebron and focused primarily on specifying the demarcation lines for each of the country's armed forces. The Egyptian, uh, the Egypt-Israel armistice, signed about five weeks prior, by contrast, addresses the Bethlehem-Hebron area. There's an article on Bethlehem-Hebron. It says, quote, the provisions of this agreement shall apply to the forces of both parties, Egypt and Israel, in each such locality, Bethlehem and Hebron, except that the demarcation of the armistice line and reciprocal agreements for withdrawal and reduction of forces shall be undertaken in such a manner as may be decided by the parties at such a time as an armistice agreement may be concluded covering military forces in that area other than those of the parties to this agreement. So other another party could be involved in helping to decide who was going to control Hebron. 
had Israel inserted into the Egypt-Israel armistice agreement a point of reference for the Transjordanians to take over the Hebron region when the time was right, thus coming to an agreement with Egypt on this matter. All that would be needed then was an eventual agreement between the Transjordanians and the Egyptians to make what was undoubtedly not a friendly situation appear friendly. Several sources in the historiography in the Arabic historiography, discussed the Egyptian pullout from Hebron and Bethlehem in response to King Abdullah sending Jordanian negotiators to Cairo to work out the Egyptian withdrawal. So Abdullah had to actually send people, a, a team of people, to Cairo to convince the Egyptians to pull out from Hebron by the time that was all done, after the uh, Israeli Transjordanian, they called it Transjordanian, it was Jordan by then, um, to get the Egyptians to pull out. So such an agreement was reached and the Egyptian troops left Hebron on April 30th, 1949. There's uh, a compilation of news and government reports that appear in a volume of the Hashemite archives, the Jordan-Egypt relations, uh, that recount the developments between Egypt and Jordan during 1949 with some disjunction between the two sides, particularly evident through the reporting of Al-Assess, an Egyptian newspaper. The newspaper printed a, uh, um, a speech by Jordanian Prime Minister Tawfiq Pasha al-Abulhoda in uh, April 27, 1949, in which he thanked the Egyptian governor, government for its valuable aid and cooperation in Hebron and Bethlehem. Abulhoda confirmed that because the armistice agreement had been signed, Jordan would now administer these regions. As these reports clarify that the Transjordanian-Israeli armistice did not solidify Jordan's control as the troops remained in Hebron. Um, the Egyptian-Israeli armistice stipulates that the status of Hebron be renegotiated by a third party, namely a negotiation between Egypt and Jordan. Egyptian Prime Minister Ibrahim Abdelhadi remarked in Al-Assas that he was, quote, relieved over the assurance that there were no additional agreements or appendixes that he had to be concerned about, but in turning the region over to Jordan, he was relieved that the region was, quote, purely for the Arabs. In other words, he didn't want any more territory to become part of the Zionist settlement. By 30 April 1949, Hebron had become part of the Kingdom of Jordan, the Jordanians having convinced the Egyptians to depart. This also had support from the international Israeli-Egyptian armistice agreement, a more formal and perhaps better documented agreement. The rhetorical animosity evident in the news accounts and reports in a few pages of the Jordan-Egypt relations volume of the Hashemite archives convey a harbinger of the future hostilities that would unfold between Egypt and Jordan over the following decade. <clears throat> it would be, quote, purely for the Arabs, but would it remain under Hashemite rule or would it be Nasserite Arab nationalism of the 1950s that would capture the sentiment of the Palestinians? Which country's brand of Arab nationalism would provide the Palestinians with a chance to reclaim Palestine? Egyptian troops did not withdraw from Hebron until more than two months after Egypt and Israel had signed their armistice agreement and nearly one month after Jordan had signed uh, its armistice, Jordan and Israel had signed their armistice agreement. Some Palestinian supporters of Egyptian rule in Hebron left for Gaza with the Egyptians never to return, while some uh, left for Gaza and returned. Some who had worked as civil servants for the Egyptian forces in Hebron uh, and Bethlehem, which they considered good and just work, raised complaints about not being permitted to work because they had come from the now Jordanian areas to Gaza with the Egyptian army. The Egyptians now ruling Gaza after 1948 did not accept the Palestinians' claims simply because they had been loyal to them in dual-era Hebron. 
The Egyptians had not asked for additional civil servants to come to Gaza and in fact had asked them to remain in Jordanian-controlled Hebron because the new Egyptian administration in Gaza could not handle any more uh, uh, Palestinian civil servant employees from, uh, from Hebron and from Bethlehem. Those who came anyway, quote, were refused because they came without request or need and there was no money in the budget to pay for additional salaries, end quote. Um, some supporters of Egypt stayed in Hebron and tried to find a modicum of stability in the Jordanian kingdom, but two or three years later, they, they still found themselves without work and petitioned the Jordanian government for help in reclaiming their salaries from the period of the dual era. So the dual era returns in 1951 on March 14th, 1951, the Committee of Former Employees of Hebron sent a letter to the Jordanian Prime Minister seeking compensation from the Egyptian side of the dual era for work done during the month of April 1949. I argue that this six-point letter reinforces the notions of proto-nationalist tensions from the dual era, which would open wide five to six years later during the premiership of Suleiman and Nabulsi when he sought relations with Egypt that threatened the king but inspired the West Bank population. The writers of the letter introduced themselves as, quote, we, the former employees of the dual era, the Jordanian Egyptian, who did not receive a salary for the month of April 1949 from the Egyptian administration, end quote. This appeal to the, quote, Egyptians of the dual era administration, end quote, raises the question of why the Egyptians rather than the Jordanians were paying the salaries of the dual era employees, or whether perhaps there was some kind of special arrangement as to who would pay the salaries, maybe bi-monthly, who knows. The letter mainly focuses on how the signatories could convince the prime minister to assist them in recouping their financial losses from Egypt during the dual era. The first point the committee notes is that, quote, the Egyptian government promised to pay this salary within a month of its withdrawal, but it did not fulfill its promises, end quote. Salary payment concerned not only high bureaucratic officials, lower level, uh, younger employees and policemen also wrote about the subject in their diaries, right? Sami Amr and Mohammed al-Sharouf. The issue of who paid salaries remains a bit muddled in the second item on the letter writer's list as it pertains to cooperation and collaboration between the two countries of the dual era. Had they cooperated and collaborated? When hostilities broke out in Hebron in March 1949 among the, uh, the population over which country Hebronites preferred to be ruled by, Sammy writes in his diary that the Egyptians asked the Jordanians not to harm the population. It didn't exactly happen that way. They spoke, but Jordan's troops engaged harshly. Egypt's troops, according to Mohammed al-Sharouf and Abdullah Attal, seem to have been well coordinated with the Jordanians on the departure. Now, two years later, in consultation with the current Egyptian government, the letter drafters write to Prime Minister al-Rafai that agreement had been reached between them, the letter writers, and the, and the Egyptian government via the Egyptian consul in Amman for payment. They were simply petitioning the Prime Minister for a way to permit the funds to enter the country. The Egyptians seemed to have placed a condition on the payment, however. They wanted to send a representative to Hebron and Bethlehem directly to make the payments in person and, quote, according to their official methods, which are undefined in the letter. Surely this would have been unpalatable to the Jordanian government, which had just managed two years prior to end an official Egyptian presence in those two important southern Palestinian, now West Bank, Jordanian cities. 
to make the transaction seem more palatable to the Prime Minister, the letter's authors mentioned that the amount is not small and that while the former dual-era employees are in need of funds, some of what they will gain will return to, quote, our Jordanian government, end quote, by way of the Treasury as repayment on a loan to the attorneys of the District of Hebron for the month in question. From the Jordanian government, uh, from the Jordanian perspective, the Prime Minister did not need the Egyptian officials to return and appear in an official capacity, particularly if they were coming to make payments to Palestinian Jordanian officials. Only two years earlier, these signatories had hoped that the Egyptians would stay and rule Hebron. Now they were demonstrating a distinct and growing link between the Palestinians on the West Bank and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. The language used in this letter to the Prime Minister may very well be playing on the idea, new idea of unification as a means to show support for the kingdom. At the same time, these individuals were seeking their own financial interests from a time when they lent support to the Egyptians as the rulers in Hebron. In the third item on the list, the authors of the letter claimed that the money had been earmarked for them and would considerably aid their financial situation. This point causes one to pause because the monthly salary for an administrative employee during wartime could not have been an exorbitant sum. Yet, as correspondence with Samir Amar, son of 1949 diarist Sami Amar makes clear, one of the signatories to the letter, Sheikh Fathi al-Hamouri, related to Sami by marriage, did not work for two years following the dual era as a kind of punishment by the Jordanian government before they forgave him and returned him to a highly respectable position, the Imam of the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron. Gaining this lost income thus would have been most welcome. Sheikh al-Hamouri had served as Bashkatib, the title he used to sign the letter. He served in this position both during the dual era and before that during the British mandate. While Sheikh Fathi had uh, stayed in, what became, the in uh, what became Jordanian territory after the Egyptian departure, his two brothers, Fakhri and Fahmi, went with the Egyptians to Gaza. It's unclear if Sheikh Fathi was punished because his brothers left with the Egyptians or because the Jordanians needed to send the public a message due to Sheikh Fathi's position in the city's religious affairs. Once the Jordanians assigned him to the Ibrahimi Mosque in 1951, he reclaimed his prestige. Nevertheless, Sheikh Fathi's sister claims that her brother never received any compensation from the Egyptians as a result of the letter. The letter writers imply that there were uh, impediments to receiving compensation because the Egyptians wanted to send a representative to Hebron and Bethlehem to pay the monies directly in an official manner. If the Hashemite government could, quote, be in, a, in contact with the generous Egyptian government and make clear to them that there is no objection to a representative coming, if that was the obstacle in paying the salary and only to pay it to us, end quote, the letter writers would be most grateful. The arrangements could be made through a bank or perhaps through the Egyptian consul based in Amman. The writers claimed not to understand what the obstacle was, as if. However, in the final item on the list, uh, if one reads between the lines, one can gather why the Jordanians likely prevented the Egyptian representative from coming to deliver compensation which would, quote, show what good this generous Egyptian aid will do going back to the dual era employees, end quote. The Jordanians could not have wanted an Egyptian representative coming to bring financial compensation, deliver it by hand, and perhaps have newspapermen present to witness the event and snap photographs that would appear in the papers. Such a public display could have delivered the Egyptians a public relations success during a decade that would turn hostile for Egypt-Jordan relations in the kingdom. 
If one reads the letter on the basis of financial necessity alone, it is convincing. Palestinians had suffered considerably as a result of the 1948 war, and many had gone for periods of time without work, including those at the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Yet implicit in it for the Jordanian government is Egypt's underhanded way of scoring political points with the Palestinians in the West Bank, something that the Jordanians no doubt wished to prevent. In conclusion, the dual era in Hebron marks one of the more unusual episodes in the history of the Palestine War. In no other Palestinian city save Bethlehem, as far as I've been able to determine, did the local population feel the tug of war between two major Arab states contending for local control while simultaneously fighting against the Zionist Israeli enemy. Urban historians thus are challenged by this unusual constellation of forces in the city while limited, limited by the sources informing it. The decade after the dual era would mark a great turn of events in both Egypt and Jordan, as well as for Palestinians in the Hashemite Kingdom. The competition for Palestinian support in Hebron between Jordan and Egypt that existed during that brief period of the dual era would expand to cities throughout Jordan. In 1952, Gamal Abdel Nasser and the Free Officers Movement, which included the former Egyptian Hakim al-Askari in Hebron, Abdel Mohsen Abu Nur, brought 150 years of Egypt's monarchy to an end along with British imperial rule in the country. King Hussein began to rule Jordan in 1953 when he came of age after his father's grandfather's assassination in 1951 and his father's short reign from 1951-1952. Hussein and Nasser faced major challenges domestically and regionally as well as with the major powers of the United States and the Soviet Union. Although they had opposing visions for the region, Hussein made efforts to work with Nasser. Yet his attempts to reform his kingdom and its institutions and the challenges that came from the unresolved Palestine issue continued to affect the king and his decision-making, as did unstable relations between the two countries. This short dual era effectively offers a prelude to the Arab nationalist competition between Egypt and Jordan, which would escalate during the second half of the 1950s and almost cost King Hussein his throne. The stories that I've shared about Palestinian lives also begin uh, to tell us something about how Hebronites responded to the machinations of these larger powers during and after the war. Thank you. Uh, okay, guess we'll open it to the question and answers. Uh, should we take a question and you answer it and then move to the... Okay, yeah. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure, sure. Thank you very much for this formative lecture. Uh, I'll just uh, call it not command. Thank you. Uh, another thing, you mentioned the Jordanian archives. What are these archives? <laughs> I'm glad I can introduce you to something. <laughs> I'm glad I can introduce you to something. The other thing which is more important is there is something missing in, in the whole presentation, which is the role of the Mufti, Jihad al-Muqaddas, Palestine, and the struggle between the Palestinians and the Jordanians. I think mainly it was not between the Egyptians and the Jordanians. In Hebrew, it was between the supporters of the Mufti and the supporters of King Abdullah. Muhammad Ali Jabal was the one who uh, uh, presided over the Muqtamar uh, Ariha to annex the West Bank to the Jordanians, and he played a major role in establishing the Jordanian rulership in Hebrew and other uh, cities with his, uh, I mean, other people who supported King Abdullah. 
So I think there is nothing about this. And the issue of the waqf and the shrines, Islamic shrines, is also missing. Because the Jordanians, they put their hand on this and struggled with the Mufti, who was the president of the Supreme Muslim Council. And he tried to gain back his presidency after the uh, withdrawal of the British. But the Jordanians, King Abdullah, came immediately and he announced that Hussam Ibn Jarallah is the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and not Hajj Amir Hussein. So I think this, this issue of conflict between Abdullah and Hussein should be in the whole narrative. Let's, let, let's take a number of okay. uh, inputs. And, uh, hold on. في حد بحكيش عربي؟ في حد بحكيش عربي؟ تمام؟ اوكي يعني انا معلش احكي كسريح يعني في شيء مسن اول شيء برغب انه اشوف هذا في اطار اوسع واحد منه اطار المحاولات الهاشميه الاردنيه بالتأثير على فلسطين واللي هي حتى ابتدت في قصة يعني توسط الأمير عبد الله للحاج أمين حسين اللي أصبح المفتي رئيس المجلس بالرجوع لفلسطين وبعدين قصة السيطرة يعني من العشرينات خلق بداخل فلسطين جماعة مؤيدة وهذا كانت منعكسة بشكل واضح جدا خصوصا في الصحافة الفلسطينية ولاحقا يعني تشكل جماعة المعارضة اللي أصبحوا أوتوماتيكيا موالين مع الأمير عبد الله وفكرة كمان لجنة بيل يعني كيف لما لجنة بيل شافت إنه الجزء العربي بده ينضم إلى شرق الأردن يعني فكرة خيار الأردن ولدت في توصيات ريكومنديشن تبعت توصيات لجنة بيل كمان في مصدر كثير مهم الحقيقه اللي هي اللي المجلدات اللي عملها عدنان البخيت اللي هي حول في مجلدين حول ال 48 واللي هي بتوري انه جزء كبير مع انه فعلا يعني انا معلوماتي انه شعبيا معظم الناس كانت مع الجيش المصري ولكن الاردن كان له امتداد اجتماعي عميق يعني وراسخ وهذا بنشوفه في البرقيات اللي من عم تحكي عن الخليل انت انا بحكي عن الخليل مش بس لا لا عن الخليل بنلاقي برقيات عشرات البرقيات من قرى الخليل ومن الخليل نفسها ابتداء من شهر ثلاثه اللي بتستنجد بالملك عبد الله عشان يجي يحميهم فهو المجلد على ما اعتقد الثامن او التاسع التاسع اوكي الثامن او التاسع القصة كمان الأحكام يعني الصراع يعني أكيد لازم النراتيف تبعت الجهاد المقدس خصوصا بتموز 1948 يعني ضرب الهاد بس المحاضرة الرائعة بشكر كثير عليها وهي فعلا بتغطي جانب حلو بس أنا بشوف يعني هذا الفريم الأكبر ضروري حتى نفهم هذا قصة الصراع 
make three at least. Uh, and, um, um, I don't know much about that uh, era, so I, I have a question about the geographical continuity uh, for Egypt and how how they uh, uh, how what they did about it or the lack of it, uh, as I suspect. Okay, should we take one more uh, and then we can have another round? يعني أنا طبعا بالنسبة لي معلومات كثير مفيدة يعني أنا بعرف شمال الضفة الغربية أكثر من جنوب يعني عشت بالشمال يعني بالشمال كانت المشاعر على ما أذكر يعني نشأت بنابلس يعني كانت مشاعر معادية للأردن بشكل قوي ويمكن يعني سؤال زميلي هون مهم كثير قضية الوصل ما بين مصر والضفة الغربية، يمكن باتفاق الهدنة بين مصر واسرائيل ما كانتش اسرائيل تصل إلى إيلات مش هيك؟ يعني تجاوزت يعني كان في وصلة ما بين فلسطين أو ما بين الأردن ومصر كما هو بال بالتقسيم على كل حال إلى حد ما لا بالتقسيم بالتقسيم لا اللقب كان مع الدوله اليهوديه او يعني جزء كبير او نص اللقب الغربي كان مع الدوله الفلسطينيه فيعني الجانب الفلسطيني اللي اللي حكى عنه الدكتور سميح يعني الى اي حد يعني هون لانه يعني يبدو كان في اختلاف بالمناخات في المناطق الفلسطينيه بالضفه الغربيه. لاي حد كان له حضور في في الخليل يعني الى جانب هذا الصراع او الخلاف المصري الاردني. وعلى ما اعتقد بعرفش اذا يعني عندك نفس يمكن يمكن لمحتي للموضوع. الخلاف المصري الاردني كان موجود من الايام الملكيه وبقي يعني ومصر لم تعترف بضم الضفه الغربيه للاردن عام 50 مش هيك؟ صحيح الجامعة الجامعة ومصر الجامعه اعتبرت وديعه وديعه الجامعه ككل ولكن مصر ايضا لم تعترف لا ما انا فاهم بس انا بقول اكثر من مصر الجامعه طيب شكرا جزيلا نفتح مجال لكبر الجاوب وبعدين نعمل كمان دوره تفضلي. I think the questions are all very interesting as far as the Jordanian archive um, the some of what I talked about and said is that um, I mentioned the Hashemite archives as uh, um, Dr. Saleh mentioned um, and I used volume nine, as you mentioned. Um, so, so that's one thing. But in in the National Library, sorry, volume nine of what? Of the Hashemite archives. It's a series of documents <laughs> that Adnan al-Bakhi published. Yeah, there is something called the um, 
archives in the National Library that are it's uh, scanned documents that are available um, and it's you know into a hazak no it's uh, at the National Library which is on the University Road it's the new it's the new it's the new National Library it, it used to be at the third circle but now it's on the University Road um, and you can even look online, actually. Online? Yeah. And download the scanned copies? Yeah, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think you can just copy them. I don't know if they're downloadable so much as cop you copyable. You can see them. Yeah. Um, so it's the headshot if you find. Yeah. yeah, like a screenshot. Screenshot. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Uh, it depends on your topic and it depends what you're looking for. Um, so I think because of you know how I sort of got into the topic and um, you know and, and every subject you sort of look at in through a particular set of lenses and I was um, you know and I got into it more more through the diary and then began to look uh, you know outward from there um, that you know, I really stayed focused on the 48 and 49 period and didn't go as far back even as the Peel um, Commission. Um, but I, I, um, I think that the, the you know, this, I looked at, uh, I tried to think about the ways that, um, that Jordan had been, you know, I thought about Avi Schleim and when I was looking at Glub and when I was looking at uh, Ma'an, Abu Nawar, and they all, I can see where Avi Schleim gets his thesis from. He's obviously relying on the historiography from all of these writers and that also comes from who was, you know, going to have um, Hebron as part of the, uh, the, of the Peel partition. So I can see where that context certainly comes from. I just hadn't, you know, formulated you know, my talk in that way, but in one of my footnotes it says, you know, I, this is Avi Schleim's basic thesis, which, you know, I think comes from that larger context as well. Um, I didn't shape it in that way. I didn't really think about, um, you know, talking about it in terms of shrines, because I was really trying to focus on the political context as, um, you know, as, as that sort of Arab nationalist political context between two states. I'm not sure that every paper can get at every angle or every aspect of it, and so you have to somehow have limits to what you're talking about. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was my limit. The issue of geographical continuity was kind of interesting because in um, I mentioned that in the uh, the report by Ali Al Khatib, one of the things that he talked about um, was cutting off the entry of goods that were coming in, you know, set, uh, setting up some customs barriers of things coming in from Jordan because of something that King Abdullah had done. And the question of how things were going to come in from Gaza doesn't really sort of enter into his discussion at all. But it's, and then there's this other issue of how payments, how salaries are going to come in from Gaza as well. And there's never this discussion of there's like, you know, there's this state in between, like, so the, there's no discussion of the recognition of the state or that the state's an obstacle in between or how are things going to get there or Jordan could be, uh, you know, maybe we could send things over from the Red Sea and, and, and you know, things could come up from Jordan and in through Jordan and, and, and that Jordan is this land passage, right? So there's no discussion of geographical continuity as, uh, as an obstacle or a benefit that Jordan could be helpful 
none of that, right? So you know, so Hebron is this island of of you know, and and one of the things that I kind of find fascinating about it is that nobody else is talking about the fact that that uh, Egypt has these troops stuck in Hebron. Right, it never ever comes up. Uh, you know, the discussion of the troops in Fallujah was the reason that that Egypt went to the armistice in the first place. But there's no mention of the fact that there are troops, and I don't even know how many troops were actually there. But it was clearly enough to make Egypt seem like the dominant player in in uh, in the dual era, right? In this, you know, in this configuration between Egypt and Jordan. But ultimately, when when the armistice seems to have gotten going on. Um, what it looks like to me is that Israel already had this all worked out, right? As Schleim's thesis, you know, sets out for us that Egypt, that sorry, that Israel and Jordan had already worked out, had colluded on this, because uh, Hebron was probably part of the partition plan that, um, and Jordan and Egypt, sorry, Israel and Egypt had already worked all this out, that, uh, you know, that, that all they had to do, but nevertheless, it, Jordan still had to get Egyptian troops out. They still had to work that whole, that whole thing out, and so um, that's that's what appears in Volume Nine. Is is you know how how are they going to negotiate and convince and 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 get the Egyptians to actually leave? Why was Avishlein feel? I mean, it wasn't Abdullah Tell the collusion. No, I just as a wrap up. I mean, he's. I, I, I just as a footnote, I mentioned. I, I spent a long discussion of Abdullah Talk in the paper. Actually, I just. I just yes, mentioned it. My question: If I will use the theory of collusion, would I? Uh, oh like, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's Abdullah Tal first. Or yeah. Bishlam? No, Abdullah Tal. So he's in the paper, and okay. then I say as a okay. you know as a, in a footnote, he wraps this up as a conclusion. Okay. Yeah, as a secondary source. Okay, uh, we can start other. Did I? Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Did I? Jawab Oh, so the flag, the issue of the flag. Um, so the flag is kind of interesting because one source doesn't mention a Palestinian flag at all. Another one mentions that it c comes down, um, and it doesn't seem to be the Palestinian flag. Doesn't seem to be the central point. The central point seems to be the Jordanian and the Egyptian flags uh, there. Um, so it's hard, you know, it's hard to tell. Was it the same flag as the Palestinian flag now? It, that I don't know because there's no description of the flags. Not in any case. There's no, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood puts up a flag, and I don't know if there was a special Muslim Brotherhood flag or if this is the Egyptian flag they're putting up. You know what, what is strange is that for Jordan there is a flag of what they call the Arab Revolution of mm -hmm. 1916, yeah. which is the Palestinian flag. Yeah, the same flag as yeah. Palestine. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, we'll start another uh, one, and I want to use my position sitting here to ask a question, but I'll, um, I think the missing component here is the one raised by Samia, which is the Palestinian presence. I mean, you, you suggest that the duality was between Jordan and Egypt. Now, of course, the Palestinians were crushed, but surely Hajamin, Jihad Muqaddas, local sentiments which were hostile to Abdullah was not all necessarily pro-Egyptian. 
So there is a, a need for a feeling of what was the people on the ground doing in, in, in terms of where was Jihad Muqaddas, what were they doing? Did Hajj Amin make any representation? Did he put his hand completely in the Egyptian hand at the time or not? And in terms of the term that you use, dual administration, you first said that it was your term. No, I said no. I borrowed it from the letter. Uh, from the memorandum. Yeah. From so the that, that term appears in the memorandum. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so my point is just this question about uh, the Palestinian presence in, in Hebron. Hold on. Yeah. So, so I'm actually interested. Going back to the question about geography, uh, we talk. You, you talk mostly about the city of Hebron, but did this extend to the district? And if it did, um, you know, sort of the agricultural history, specifically of Hebron, you know, there's uh, there's one stream that talks about the Jordanian efforts to revitalize the economy and or pay off people in the Hebron district in particular by transferring in livestock. Do you have that same sort of competing set of um, agricultural development efforts, if you can call them that, in the region of uh, region of Hebron as opposed to Hebron City? It gets into the villages. Um, you could similarly talk about, you know, okay, so what were the Fadayin doing? Because we know that in places like Sa'ir, the, the Fadayin were very strong prior to the war, one would presume they had alliances and allegiances um, and organized groups. Were they part of this mix as well? That I, that I don't really have any, yeah. an answer for. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> وفخر الحموري وغير ذلك كانوا أهم من إيش بحكي المفتي بالقص هذيك الفترة بعدين الاستقطاب العشائر اللي كان بالخليل كتير أهم كان من الجهاد المقدس إنه عمر ومخلص عمر جماعة مصر وبروح على مستشفى معلوقة وبعد هناك والآخرين مع الشيوعيين بستنوا إيش يجيهم من مصر عشان يروحوا لهناك أو شيء والمنطقة الثانية قاعد فيها ال محمد علي الجعبري وروح على العمارة والآخرين هاي في مجتمع الخليل العشائري كانت كتير أهم من الأشياء الإطارية الثانية يعني إذا بدي أسأل شيء بس يعني على موضوع الشرطة من كان الشرطة بالخليل في, في ذلك الوقت إذا كان في تقسيم جغرافي بالمدينة يعني المناطق تحت السيطرة هاي المصرية أو الأردنية 
والشيء الثالث هل الموضوع يتعلق بس بالموظفين ولا في قطاعات اخرى غير الموظفين اللي راحوا لمصر او شيء شكرا بس ممكن نسال عن مصادرك والله انا نراتيف شفوي اوكي تفضلي These are some things I actually don't know because there are limits to what the sources tell us. I, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, who controlled what segments of, of the bureaucracy of the municipality. I don't know if they were, you know, they divided up into quarters. These are things I would like to know more about, but I, I don't have the sources on them. Yeah, but those are really good questions. Those are things I, I thought a lot about, but I, I couldn't find any sources on them. Yeah, so, best you can tell, was this all just about the city of Hebron, or was it uh, Yeah, yeah. That, as far as I can tell, it was. It was about no. It was about the city of Hebron. It was about Bethlehem. Okay. So it, it it probably did include the district, but um, I I don't know. You know, the, the the sources are really limited on this, which is why I think there's nothing written in English on it, and very little written on, in Arabic without much analysis. Just you know, Jordan and Egypt. You know, we're, we're in the city, um, almost nothing written about this, right? So, almost nothing written about this. Um, so, you know, it's piecing together very limited amount of sources and hard to fill in some of the details. Well, since then, we had a number of diaries coming out from Bethlehem itself, the most important which is the Bandak uh, diaries, which covers this period. Uh, Bandak, of course, was Abdullah's man. But uh, as you said, Bethlehem, more than Hebron, had a very strong communist party. And uh, uh, there's another Bandak, which is different than Isa Bandak, who's a communist. Isa Bandak was a nationalist and a pro-Jordanian figure. He became Jordanian ambassador to Santiago in the rule of Pinochet. And uh, he. By the way, he was a very strong pro-Pinochet force. But uh, the other side of the Bandic were communists, and they, they have published stuff, but I, I, I don't recall it. And it would be interesting to see, to measure your uh, discussion of Hebron during the Egyptian with Bethlehem from his diaries. Omar I can't relate, so my question could be out of touch with no the problem. subject. But, um, my question is about Palestinian identity and how both the Egyptian and the Jordanian, how did they see the Palestinian? Is it something to state about them? There is Palestinianism, or are they just Arab, or are they part of their subject? How did they see Palestinian identity? Um. I'm not sure they saw it as something to be promoted and distinguished <laughs> so much as something to be, you know, sort of pulled to one side or the other. Um, what I was arguing is that uh, Jordan and Egypt were sort of struggling for hegemony in the city, for control over the city, and to the extent that they could gain supporters among the Palestinian population, that's what they sought to do. I don't think that they at all saw the Palestinians as something that, 
you know, should be promoting their own. And, I, I, um, you know, from the sources that I was reading, I didn't see much in the way of the local leadership. I'm not saying that there was no local leadership. The local leadership seemed more to be in Gaza. Um, and, and so, you know. It's like in the paperwork, do we have a description? What did they call us? Palestinian? Uh, so, so uh, uh, the couple of the diaries that I was reading this time are not really speaking about themselves. They're speaking about, you know, the Jordanians and the Egyptians and what's happening. So they're not saying we, the Palestinians, are rising up and struggling. That's not what these sources are talking about during this time, right? So it's not really the focus of what what's happening. I'm not saying that there's nothing happening, um, but it's. I, I will say what's really interesting, and um, because you weren't here at the beginning. Um, Salim was talking about um, my first book, my book on uh, Sami Amr, whose work I mentioned in, in the talk uh, as having written, kept a second diary. In this, in this book, I think you can see his nationalism, right? He's very much tied to the land uh, and to his city of Hebron. But in, uh, in 1949, when, when Palestine seems to be lost, he's trying to figure out whom he should side with, the Jordanians or the Egyptians. And so I think once the Nakba happens, I, I, you know, it's, it's always terrible to generalize, but I'm sure he wasn't alone in this. And the other diarist that I talked about was very pro-Egyptian by this time. So was it because, the, you know, are these two diarists indicative of a larger issue in that they recognized the Nakba had happened, larger forces are at work, and you better take a side because, you know, Palestinian leadership has left them or lost at this point and you need to do what you can um, I, I think I think you could probably make that argument for you know some people certainly and these two diarists definitely well uh, we're very grateful to you uh, it was a lovely and very delightful discussion and I hope we'll see you again in the near future. Inshallah. Yeah. And that we will see a book in Arabic. Inshallah. Very soon. Inshallah. Shukran jazeelan. Thank you all for coming and for your questions.